So back in May, when all of us were getting used to lockdown, stay-at-home orders, we were, everyone was spending a whole lot more time indoors, including us, my wife Andy had a great idea. Since we were going to be spending a lot of time inside, let's do some painting Freshen up our space a little bit. We didn't really like the, the color scheme anyway, and so we wanted to uh, do some change. So we, we went out, we bought some paint, and we got to work. Now, I was given the charge of the accent wall, you know? It's kind of the one that stands out, and our accent wall has this wood paneling, and there's the, the fireplace and the mantle. I was only given one job, that wall. I worked hard on that wall. When it was all said and done, my lines were sharp. I mean, really sharp. The colors fit the room. Every detail, and I'm a perfectionist, was spot on. And when it was done, I stood back and looked at all that I had done and said it was good. And it was good for a day. The very next day, a chair bumped the wall. Not hard. It wasn't an act of violence. It was just a minor bump. But when that happened, a sizable portion of that freshly painted paint came off. So I went over to investigate. It's my wall. What's happening? And as I touched the paint, I realized that none of the paint was sticking to the wood paneling. And I felt my gut sink because I realized I'd made a huge mistake. I painted latex paint directly over oil-based paint without using a primer. It's a total rookie move. Bush league. And here's the problem. I knew in my gut it was oil-based paint. And I know the rules of painting. I know that you cannot paint latex over oil without a primer. But in that moment, I suppressed the truth. I believed a lie that my wall, my work would be the exception. See, I wanted to cut corners. I didn't want to spend the extra 15 bucks on the paint. I didn't want to have to do another step, but instead of saving time and money, it actually cost me hours and hours of stripping, scraping, and sanding, not to mention all the extra money to get this wall prepped, primed, and painted correctly. Now, I tell this story to illustrate and ask the question, what do you do when everything falls apart? What do you do when your paint is peeling from the wall? Now, my example is inconsequential compared to the biggest things in life, although I can tell you the last six months of just staring at this unfinished wall, constantly reminding me of my failure, didn't feel inconsequential, but it's not that big of a deal. It's just a wall. But what happens when the biggest things in life are falling apart? What do you do in that project at work, the one that you've spent a significant amount of time? You have put a ton of energy and investment only at the very end for it to all fall apart. What about parents? We just commissioned parents this morning. What about when you're in a season where it feels like no matter what you do, you just can't seem to get through? What do you do? For those who are married with us this morning, What about in your marriage when it seems like you literally can't string a few days together without tension and fighting? What about you? Just seems like nothing is going right. Nothing is going your way. You can't seem to make the right decision 
at the right time for the right reasons. And you just say, everything is falling apart. That is the feeling at the end of Genesis chapter four. Think about Adam and Eve. Eden is in their rear view. They can't go back. Think about how many times they've replayed that decision, that fateful decision to take and eat of the forbidden fruit. Think about the guilt and shame that's always just under the surface, wanting to bubble up, reminding them of their failure. And then think about the turn, the joy they felt when they welcomed Cain and Abel into the world, hearing that promise of God that one would come to crush the serpent's head and they're looking at their two boys going, one of them, maybe both of them, will be the ones to crush the serpent's head. But then tragedy strikes their family. Cain kills Abel. Their son is lost definitively. Their other son functionally lost as he is exiled into the land of wandering. Friends, what do you do when everything falls apart? Our text this morning answers that question for us. In Genesis chapter 5 and in the first few verses of chapter 6, we're going to learn three things as we answer the question, what do you do when everything falls apart? First, we're going to see preservation beyond sight. If you're taking notes, that's our first point today. Preservation beyond sight. When it seems like things are falling apart, the believer can trust that the word of God always proves true despite what we can see. Friends, God is always at work despite what we can see. Second, we're going to see the pervasiveness of sin. The reality is sometimes things get worse before things get better because sin is always at work to disrupt and destroy. And third, we're going to see a promise of salvation. When everything falls apart, we have to cling to the promises of God as our only hope. So we'll see the preservation beyond our sight. We'll see the pervasiveness of sin and we'll see the promise of salvation. Let's start in verse one together. Verse one begins like this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now I wanna stop that right there for a brief moment. This phrase, the generations of, if you're reading through the book of Genesis and I highly encourage you to do so, you're going to see that phrase 10 times. That's not incidental or coincidental. They're like these um, hooks that Moses is using to give you frameworks for the book. We've seen one already in chapter two, verse four, with the creation of heaven and earth. It says this is the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this is the second. And we're gonna see this come up again with Noah, his sons, with Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. It's gonna give us these genealogies. And sometimes the genealogies will be by themselves. We're just gonna get a list of names. But sometimes you're gonna get a list of names and then an extended story. We used this analogy last week, but it's worth repeating that these genealogies are like the historical fast forward buttons. It's giving us a history of time. And, and so there's these places where it kind of fast forwards and, and it covers uh, vast swaths of redemptive histories, but then it stops and it slows down on these important moments. 
when either the line of redemption is threatened or solidified. And what it's doing for us is it's, it's telling us, slow down right here. This is a very important part of the story. And if we're honest, genealogies also happen to be where we skip over and skim over because the names are hard to pronounce or they seem irrelevant to us. We get to Mahalala and we're like, Mahala, Mahalala, Mahala, not going to read that anymore. Right? And we just move right on. But we need to remember that God has chosen to reveal himself to us in space and in time. God has condescended to meet us where we are. And his redemptive work occurs through a particular family. One of the mega themes of the book of Genesis is that promise given to us in Genesis 3.15 that one of the descendants of the woman would crush the serpent's head. It becomes this line of promise. And one of the big questions of the book of Genesis is how God preserves this line of promise. And as God works in and through history to preserve that line, it's carefully recorded for us. And if you skip over into the New Testament, and we're going to be talking about this um, in this origin series, we find that the trajectory of this family leads to Christ. Some of the very names that we're going to talk about today are the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus Christ. And if you find yourself today in Christ, a believer in God, this is not irrelevant history about some random people who lived ages ago. In fact, this is your history. This is our family history. Remember what I said at the beginning that we are a church where neighbors become family, that in the gospel, as we're adopted by God the Father, that we become part of this family. And so all of these names are talking to us and telling us about our history. And with a little bit of work, we can actually find insight and application into these genealogies. So let's keep going. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now Moses, he gives us a quick recap and reminder that humanity, men and women, male and female, are made in the image and the likeness of God. And if you're tracking with the story, you're going, haven't we already heard that? And the answer is yes. But now for the first time, we find out that Adam's progeny are also now made in his image after his likeness. So what does all this mean? Well, first of all, after the events of Genesis 3 and 4, it's, a good, it's good to be reminded that despite the fall, we are still made in the image of God. You might be thinking that the image of God is lost now because of sin. And so this is reminding us, no, it has not been lost. Moses affirms, though sin has marred the image, though sin has caused it to be blurry, though sin disrupts our ability to rightly reflect the image of God, all the inherent dignity, all the inherent worth, all the inherent value that we have as image bearers still 
remains. But at the same time now, Moses is letting us in on this other bit of insight that what has happened to Adam and Eve, the impact of sin, this original sin is now transferred to all future progeny. Seth is not created or formed out of the ground like Adam was, right? God gives humanity the gift of procreation and therefore humanity bears both the image of God and the image of God. Of Adam. It's both now. We have this beautiful image of God as well as this brokenness of sin. Rico Tice, a Brit, says it like this in his uh, Life Explored video series. He said, Human beings are the glory and the garbage of the universe. Now, the glory is easy to see. We tell jokes, we write poems, we score goals, make music, make babies, build skyscrapers, cure diseases. But the garbage is easy to see too. We all break promises. We tell lies. We murder, exploit, cheat, and abuse. With the same hands, we create wonder and cause unimaginable pain. There's both glory and garbage in humanity. And so the net gain after the fall is that humanity is still incredibly made in the image of God. And yet tragically, we are also marred by the stain of sin. Verse four, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Verse five ends with the tragic refrain and he died. Did you guys hear that in um, Connor's reading of the word of God this morning? We purposefully kept it intact so that you would hear that chorus and he died in fact after verse 4 it's repeated seven more times before the chapter is over what we find is the curse of death has spread if there was any question on whether or not the effects of the fall have spread to all humanity this these verses put that question to rest Over and over, we read about these these people and he lived and then he died and he lived and then he died. And friends, we're meant to hear this harrowing refrain and grieve that death has entered into creation as a thief. Death is not a friend. It's not just simply a part of life. Death is an intruder. There's a cultural lie being told right now. You hear it in our music. We hear it in uh, our philosophy. It's in our, um, it's in our journalism. Do not believe the cultural lie that death is a friend that gives meaning to life. That is an anti-biblical, anti-Christian sentiment. Listen to this quote from The Guardian in an article entitled, We'll all die one day. Isn't it time we got used to the idea? The writer says this, death is a part of life. There could be no meaningful life without it. As it is, we cast it, death, we cast death as unnatural, even evil. And this is absurd. And friends, this is completely contrary to the biblical worldview. Death is an intruder. It's an enemy. It is not a welcomed guest. It vandalizes all that is good, true, and beautiful. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. 
And we don't deal with death by just resigning underneath that, by reframing death. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, these were real men with real families, real children, real lives, and each one ended the same with the tragic punctuation of death. And yet, there's hope in this passage because each successive generation preserves the hope of Genesis 3.15. That one day, a seed from the woman would crush the serpent's head. Each one of these people, Moses is telling us, is, is, is passing on that line of promise. Seth is born after Cain and Abel are taken out of the picture. And then Seth has Enosh and Enosh has Kenan and so on and so forth. This line of promise is preserved. Chapter 5 tells us that each one in this line had other sons and daughters. We don't know their names. We don't know their stories. But the point of this genealogy is to trace the line of promise. Most of the names, they come and go without any detail except this one reality. The line of promise is continued. You see, if there's a break in the line, then the promise of Genesis 3.15 is broken. What Moses is telling you is, What God promised in the aftermath of the fall is still good. God is still being good to his word to preserve the line of promise. So what's the point? The point is God is at work beyond our sight or even awareness of each of these families down through the millennia of history to carefully bring about the birth of Jesus Christ, the one who would ultimately make good on the promises of God. And in fact, if you flip over to Luke uh, chapter 3, he traces the genealogy of Christ and every one of the names we just read, every single one of them is repeated to show this ultimate line of promise being preserved. Luke traces his family history all the way back. Now, do you think any of these people had any idea of what would happen millennia from them? No. No idea. No one knew exactly how it was that God would bring about the fulfillment of these promises. But God did. And God was at work beyond their sight. Friends, God is not passive. God is not behind the scenes, reacting to circumstances, helping us avoid close calls. Our God is sovereign. That word sovereign just simply means he is in complete control. He's actively at work to bring about his good purposes for our good and his glory. This is how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things All things church work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice Paul didn't say, and we know exactly how God works out all things together for our good. We wish that it did say that. We wish that it did say, and we know, and here's how, but it doesn't. Paul knows our understanding of what God is doing has nothing to do with God's work. But you can be sure that regardless of our ability to comprehend, God is at work. 
Friends, God orchestrates the smallest details of time, the minutia, as well as the biggest moments of history. And his ability to be both involved in the tiniest microcosms and the biggest macrocosms is beyond our ability to comprehend. But he is at work to bring heaven down to earth in the fullness of time. And he is working in each one of our lives, regardless of our ability to see. And he is the one who works it together for our good. Now let me tell you the truth. Things aren't always gonna work out the way you want. That's not what the Bible teaches. Things will fall apart. You will experience brokenness, heartache. You're going to get difficult calls from your doctor. There are going to be times when a text message comes in and the characters on that screen stop you dead in your tracks. Things will fall apart. Sin will bring disruption and disaster and even death. But God will work all of it for your good. Because God is the one in control. So when it feels like everything is falling apart, remember this. The promises of God are never threatened by the circumstances of life. Don't miss that. The promises of God are never threatened by the circumstances of life. God's promises are being kept. They are being preserved beyond our ability to see. That's the first takeaway in this genealogy, that regardless of how people's awareness was of what was happening, God was preserving the line. And at the same time, we see that this preservation happens alongside the pervasiveness of sin. Look with me at chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now let me just be straight with you. These first four verses of chapter 6 are some of the hardest to interpret in all of Genesis. We're going to load up the weekly sync with some videos and some articles that will go into a little bit more detail in the various views and um, discussions around this. But I have time this morning to explain one possible interpretation and the one that I hold. Okay? Verse 1 tells us that as humanity began to multiply, that at first this seems really good, right? This was the cultural mandate that was given to Adam and Eve to multiply, fill the earth, and to exercise a responsible dominion over the earth. And so at first glance, it seems, hey, things are going well. But we are now living in a post-Genesis 3 world, and the effects of the fall are multiplying as well. And Moses gives us these few verses to give us an example of the kind of pervasive sin on the earth. And it's, it's like a picture. It's a snapshot. It's not all that's going on. It's just giving us a glimpse. And it's, it's like one of those one pictures that's worth a thousand words. And so as humanity began to multiply, he goes on to say that the sons of God 
saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now the first thing we have to figure out is who are these sons of God? Who are they? We need to identify who they are because they're kind of the main players in this passage. And that exact Hebrew expression, sons of God, ben ha Elohim, it's not used again in the book of Genesis. In fact, it only occurs five more times in the Hebrew Bible. We'll see it in Job chapter 1. We'll see it in Job chapter 2, Job 38, and in Daniel 3. Each time this phrase sons of God is used, it's very clearly a reference to angelic beings. Now hang with me here. This is a very helpful biblical interpretation principle. When you have a phrase or a word that you don't understand what it means in its current context, you look around at other places to see if other passages of scripture can give you some understanding. So that's what we're doing here. It's not clear what sons of God means in Genesis 6. So we're going and looking throughout the rest of the Bible to see does this phrase occur again and do those passages help us identify who they are. And when you do that, All these other uses show that these are angelic beings. And as difficult as it may be to grasp, this phrase, sons of God, as it's used in the Old Testament, is a reference to angels. Fallen angels. So what we have here is that evidently some fallen angelic beings have left their proper dwelling place with God. And they've defied God's proper order to stay within their kinds, and they're now following sinful, lustful passions for sexuality. Now again, that just seems weird. We can just acknowledge that, right? That's okay. Now to help us, there's actually two places in the New Testament where this interpretation is affirmed. There's two places in the New Testament that actually comment on this passage. The first is in Jude 6 and 7 says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What Jude is doing, he's looking back on Genesis 6 and identifies These sons of God as angels, fallen angels, and tells us that they left their proper dwelling and like Sodom and Gomorrah, they engaged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. We also have another passage in 2 Peter chapter 2. And in that chapter, Peter is warning the church that false teachers will rise up from among them with destructive heresies. And he says that many will follow in their sensuality. But Peter's point in talking about that is that God is able to preserve his people despite the pervasiveness of sin. And this is his thesis in verse 9 and 10. This is what he's getting at. He says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment especially those who endust in the lust of defiling passion and authority. Okay, Peter's saying, 
even when false teachers rise up, even when it seems like people are following the lustful passions of their heart, God is able to preserve the righteous even when it seems like there's rampant unrighteousness around them. Okay, that's, that's, that's what he's teaching in 2 Peter chapter 2. And to illustrate his point, he gives an example. And wouldn't you know it's this example in Genesis 6. Look at verse 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly, that's when he goes into verse 9 and 10 then says, isn't he able to preserve the righteous? The righteous. So in his example, he basically says, you, do you remember that time? In Genesis 6, when fallen angels committed these grievous acts of sin and they left their proper dwelling place and they came down to the earth and they engaged in this sexual immorality? Well, didn't God preserve Noah when that happened? And if you read on in chapter 6, that's the very next story. And he's saying, when that was happening, wasn't God able to preserve Noah and seven others through the ark when he cleansed the world through a wide world flood? So with 2 Peter and Jude, as hard as, hard as it might be to grasp, we understand that Genesis 6, 1-4 is, is telling us, it's giving us a picture of the sinfulness of the time that fallen angels have crossed God-given boundaries and somehow, we're not told how, maybe it's through demonic possession or some kind of satanic embodiment, they have engaged in a perverse sexual activity with human women. And if you think it couldn't get weirder, it does. Verse 4 tells us they even bear children. Pastor, are you telling me that there are satanic angel babies out there roaming the world? Let me put you at ease. Whatever they are, whatever these progeny are, the very next thing that happens in Genesis 6 is the worldwide flood. So praise God for the worldwide flood. They wiped out all the satanic angel babies. Second Peter and Jude tells us that these fallen angels have been chained up in a gloomy darkness until the final day of judgment. So evidently God was like, not again, Satan, not today. And he chained them up so they couldn't do it again. Now in this passage, we also hear about a group called the Nephilim. And all week I was like, Lord, who are the Nephilim? Some have equated the Nephilim with the progeny of this unnatural demonic human union. But the text actually tells us something different. They differentiate them. Moses tells us that the Nephilim were there in those days and also afterward when this sort of thing was happening. He reminds his readers that the Nephilim were those mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so what we get is that the Nephilim are this warrior class of men. Think of them like mercenaries, right? That's who they were. And what Moses wants them to know is that whoever these Nephilim are, they're not satanic angel babies. They are like all men, mortal. And what Moses is doing here is he's demythologizing these Nephilim. Why? Because they will show up again in the book of Numbers when the children of, uh, uh, of Israel are entering into the promised land. They're going to send out some spies to go into the land of Canaan. And they're going to come back and say, hey, the Nephilim are there. We can't, we, we, we can't defeat them. And Moses is saying, listen, yes, you can 
because they're men and like all men, they are mortal. And what's more is the Lord is on our side. That's what Moses is doing here. He's putting this brief little nugget in there so that when the time comes and they encounter these people again, they will know that they are not some wild progeny of fallen angels and humans. Now listen, I know all of this sounds like some weird plot line from a 90s Nick Cage movie, all right? It does. Why is Moses telling us all this? Moses is giving us this example to show that the world at large is falling deeper and deeper into sin and farther and farther away from God's intention. What's happening is here is the whole created order is being perverted. When God established the order, there was supposed to be procreation and, and, and multiplication and filling the earth, each according to their kind. And what's happening is there is a there's a crossing of these boundaries. It's taking God's good order and inverting it and flipping it upside down. And sin is covering the face of the earth instead of the glory of God. What Moses is doing is, is setting us up for the flood. He's showing us, do you see how bad things have gotten? The pervasiveness of sin is tearing at the fabric of creation. In fact, Moses summarizes his whole point in verse 5, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you know the last time God looked on the earth and made a pronouncement? At the end of creation, he looked at all the had made and he said, what? It is very good. And now just a few chapters later, God looks back down on his creation and says, it's only wickedness. Sin has brought pollution and corruption, perversion and disruption to the earth and it's spreading like wildfire. Think of the fires in California and how they just continue to spread. That's the picture of sin destroying God's good creation. Now all of this is happening alongside concurrently with everything we just read in Genesis chapter 5 with the preservation of the line of promise. So we have both of these things happening at the same time. This is life in a fallen world. And yet God is preserving that line of promise. To fast forward to our day, 2020 is a reminder of the brokenness of our world, isn't it? It just seems like everything is breaking bad. Everything is falling apart. But friends, God is working good. Sometimes you might see it. And praise God for those moments when we actually see what God is doing. But friends, most times we don't have a clue. But God is working. So what do we do when it seems like everything is breaking and falling apart? Our last thing is we cling to the promise of salvation from God. I'm going to go back into chapter 5 and verses 21 and 24. I purposefully left these out because there are promises here in this genealogy for us. Verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And listen to this. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God 
took him. I, like I said, I left this out earlier, but I wanted to save these promises for the end. He is a life, Enoch is a life, uh, a picture of one clinging to the promises of God in the midst of the pervasiveness of sin. He is the one exception in this pattern of, of, of the genealogy. When you read the rest of it, every, uh, everyone else, and he lived and he died, and he lived and he died, and he lived and he died. And then right here in the middle, we have the life of Enoch. And anytime a pattern is broken, that's a clue for us to look in and go, wait a minute, why was his life different? Everyone else's biography ends the same way and he died. But Enoch's biography breaks the pattern. Why? Moses tells us that he walked with God. And when his time came to leave this earth, God took him. God just, he didn't have to taste death. And if you're asking, do we know anything else about Enoch? In fact, we do. In two places we find more about him in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. The writer tells us, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. So what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Enoch was a man of faith. And it was his faith that pleased God. Think about this. Enoch lives in a world where Genesis 6-5 is the pattern, where wickedness and evil intentions was great in the earth. And yet Enoch was different. Enoch clung to the promises of God that one day God would send one to crush the serpent's head and make things good again. And in fact, just in case you think that Enoch was just living in a quiet corner, huddled away, Jude tells us that Enoch was a prophet. Jude 14 and 16. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of, the un- uh, all of the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. He leaves no room for doubt, right? The ungodly and their deeds of ungodliness committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So evidently Jude tells us, that the people in Enoch's day were lying about God and enticing people into further acts of rebellion. And Enoch is this man of faith, this prophet doing his best both to believe in God and to warn others about the tragedy of sin and coming judgment. Enoch believed in the promises of God and he did his very best to encourage people to do the same. Despite the pervasiveness of sin around him, Enoch did what? He clung to the promises of God. If he had only looked at his circumstances, at the evil rampantness of sin around him, he would have thought God has abandoned this place. God will not make good on his promise. And it's now every man for themselves. But in fact, Enoch clung to the promises of God. And God taking him and sparing him from tasting death is this Old Testament hint. It's a gem that life awaits us beyond this life. It's the first moment since the fall 
that we've got this glimpse that maybe there's life after death. And Enoch is a taste of that promise. But not only do we see Enoch clinging to the promises of God, we also see Lamech, Noah's father. Look at Genesis 5, 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, if you notice, last week we met a a Lamech. This is not the Lamech of Genesis 4. This Lamech comes years later, and it's Noah's father. And apparently, he feels like a lot of us do, that the experiences of life in a post-Genesis 3 world leave us fatigued and weary. Anybody like me, around 8, 9 o'clock, you're just fatigued. Eyes are heavy, muscles ache, bones hurt, and you're just tired. See, life east of Eden is incredibly and invariably hard. You're not the exception. If you end the day exhausted and tired mentally, physically, emotionally, you like Lamech are saying the same thing. When will relief come? And by faith, Lamech believes that Noah will bring relief. Now, if you do the math, you remember when Connor was reading all those, uh, the genealogies, and it said, so and so lived so many years. If you do all the math, the birth of Noah happens 1,056 years after the events of Genesis 3.15. But that promise of Genesis 3.15 has been passed down from generation to generation. And you can see that hope is still alive, and in fact, the hope of that promise has grown. Not only is the hope that the serpent will be crushed, there is hope that the effects of the curse will be undone, that one day we will have relief and rest from the painful toil of our hands. Now, Lamech didn't know the name of Jesus Christ, but his hope is pointing us to him. It's not a coincidence that when Jesus comes onto the scene, the greater and truer Noah, the one who will provide us relief from the painful toil of our hands, it's a no wonder why Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, friends, Jesus is the one who comes to give us rest from the painful toil of our hands. Jesus is the one who tasted the full draught of death so that we could drink of his fullness and walk with God forever. Both Enoch and the birth of Noah are pointing us to Jesus. In fact, the Old Testament teaches us to look for the child of promise. Every single promise in the Old Testament, finds its yes and completion in Jesus Christ. Friends, what do you do when it seems like everything is falling apart? You cling to the promises of God. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 4 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us what 
his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Don't miss what he's saying. He's saying how do we escape the corruption? How do we escape the pervasiveness of sin in this world? How are we preserved when the sin when sin seeks to devour? We cling to Jesus Christ, the promised one who has given his life that we would be united to God. Friends, how do we cling to these promises? Two points of quick application. First, in order to cling to something, you have to know it. You have to know the promises of God. You can't cling to them if you don't know them. How do we do this? Through the regular consumption of God's word. It is not arbitrary. It is not a waste of time to read God's word and to put these promises to memory. Anytime you're reading your Bible and you see a promise of God, whatever, if you want to circle it, if you want to underline it, if you want to get out a journal and write it down, whatever it is, you've got to put these things to memory. We are so prone to forget, except that which we've committed to memory. We all talk about how forgetful we are, but then if I start talking to you about the things that you love, I find out you're like a subject matter expert, a walking encyclopedia of all kinds of information. We've memorized hundreds of songs. Some of us can rattle off um, athletic players' uh, statistics like it was our job. And I know every single one of you, none of you are sports analysts, right? We all have an ability to memorize the things that we care about. There's nothing more important than knowing God's word. We have to put it to memory. It's the only way we can cling to it. So this is a regular consumption of reading our Bibles. It also includes being committed to the Sunday gathering to hear the preaching of God's word where these promises are drawn out and explained. This is not some uh, self-serving ploy to increase attendance. It is for the good of your souls to sit under, to hear, and to receive the preaching of God's word where his promises are explained and heightened, put on the screen to say, this is the promise of God, don't miss it. This includes Bible studies of various kinds. What I'm saying is saturate yourself with the word of God so that the promises just flow out of you. And then second, Not only do you have to know the promises of God, you actually have to believe them. It's not enough just to be able to quote them. You have to put your faith and trust to them. It's a short distance, but one of the longest distances that information has to travel is from the head to the heart. You can't simply know them. You have to trust in them. Even when we can't fully see or understand with the circumstances around us, this is what it means to have faith. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Friends, you are not always going to know how everything is playing out. And that's where faith steps in. We put our faith that God will make good on every one of his promises. And we believe and trust in them even when we can't see or understanding all that is happening around us.
Let's pray.